Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. Amid the calls for an inquiry into the Reserve Bank's monetary policy response to the COVID-19 pandemic, last week I wrote an article saying, if we're to have an inquiry, can we keep politics out of it? So potentially facing an accusation of hypocrisy, my guest today is a politician and we're going to talk about the Reserve Bank's COVID-19 response. That guest is Raf Manji, the leader of the Opportunities Party. Welcome, Raf, and thanks for joining us. Now, you are, of course, a relatively recent politician, at least on the national scene, not currently in Parliament. Um, previously, you've been a strategy and risk consultant, an investment banker, including trading the yen and the Japanese government bonds, or JGBs, back in the 1990s, and a Christchurch city councillor. You're also a longtime critic of quantitative easing, which we obviously saw the Reserve Bank embark on back in March 2020, buying up government bonds, local government bonds on the secondary market off banks in an effort to suppress interest rates. You wrote some articles for, for interest.co.nz back then about this. So I thought it'd be a good point to kick off would be to go back to, to March 2020 and just remind us what your concerns were at the outset and have they come to fruition? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And yes, I'm certainly approaching this not really through a political lens, but through that financial commentary lens um, and experience in financial markets and global finance, you know, over the last, you know, 30, 35 years. And I was reading the outline to a paper that's just been published on um, the monetary response. And we're starting to get some data coming through. But one of the first, let's say, focus points was the misdiagnosis of what was happening. And I think for me, when I go back, and it's and it's important that we all reflect on, you know, what we said at the time, you know, I was very, very clear that this was a liquidity crisis. It wasn't particularly a credit crisis. It was not a business cycle recession or depression, yet that's how it was being treated. And so for me, the initial impulse was really to make sure that there was liquidity. I mean, clearly the bond market was in meltdown and that needed strict intervention. So for, for me, in a way, the initial QE impulse, I wasn't particularly too bothered about. And also I was quite keen from a New Zealand perspective to see the mechanics of it working. Now, of course, I think, as I said at the time, I would have preferred um, the Treasury and Reserve Bank to be dealing directly with each other and not providing huge amounts of basically easy profits for the banks. And they had their reasons for that in terms of keeping banks interested. But actually, I would have liked to have seen that process work um, as well. And I think the the misdiagnosis led to, you know, a number of policy impulses, which has actually ended up with this kind of, let's say, over-expansionary fiscal policy. And I think New Zealand is different to other countries. So, for example, in the US and probably the UK, yes, the, the, there has been over-expansion. Probably too much money has has flooded out into the general economy. New Zealand's problem, which is always our problem, is the huge focus on the property market and the impact that that has. And there's no doubt that probably, you know, whichever data you look at, probably a third of our inflationary impulse was from the housing market and the follow-on effects of that. You know, the renovations, the squeeze in capacity, and the, just the extraordinary rise in property prices as that money. And, and actually, you know, I think the Reserve Bank and, and frankly, even the Prime Minister were very clear that they wanted to see house prices go up. And you're kind of thinking, oh, hold on a sec, step back a bit. What is the problem? And essentially for me, and it became, I think, clear certainly after that first lockdown by 
July, August 2020, that we turned off the economy. We had not had a destruction in productive capacity. Stock was still sitting around. Um, you know, most things that were, say, perishable, you know, obviously we had the issue with butchers and greengrocers and stuff like that. Um, most things could still move. You could still buy food, still go to the supermarket. Yes, people were getting paid for essentially sitting at home, but a lot of people could work from home. So, you know, there were bits of the economy we could probably model to say, okay, that stuff, we put money in there and we haven't got anything out the other side. But the extraordinary impulse in the credit markets in terms of mortgage lending was, you know, the signal was going off. And I remember actually Janae, um, who was still, I think, at interest, asking the prime minister, I think towards the end of 2020, in one of the, the, the press conferences, you know, what, what, what's your view on what's going on in the housing market? And the PM really couldn't answer the question, but essentially was saying, yes, we'd like sort of sustained moderation, whatever the hell that I remember means. that well. Do you yeah, remember? remember and she well. didn't answer yeah. the question. And it, I just kind of thought it was back then that things were happening. So like I've, my, my general position has been, I thought the Reserve Bank did a good job in 2020. And I think the government did a good job in 2020. 2021 was a train wreck. And I think that's because for the government, it was complacency. I think for the Reserve Bank, quite frankly, it was hubris. I mean, they really thought they had this thing sorted. And they they lost the focus on, you know, you're responding to essentially a financial crisis. These things evolve. They don't stay around forever. And you need to constantly be questioning yourself. So if we think about some of the other proposals at the time, you know, negative interest rates, which I was not a fan of at all. And it turned out at the time that actually the banking system wasn't quite ready, even though they sort of, everyone thought they were supposed to get ready for that. Because negative interest rates are about, you know, a huge easing in credit conditions in terms of trying to stimulate borrowing. That wasn't the problem. I mean, it's not like we needed to reinvigorate the economy. Everything was still there. It just everyone was sitting at home waiting to turn it back on. So, I mean, I call this really a pandemic economy where you can't go out and do things. And of course, now uh, with Ukraine, we have a war economy on top of it. So it's, you know, wow, it's almost like going back to the 1920s, the war and the Spanish flu hitting at the same time. It has huge impacts and it's very, very difficult to manage. But I think if the Reserve Bank had looked uh, a little bit more carefully at the outcomes of its policy towards the end of 2020, they might have gone, okay, everyone, let's get in a room. What's happened here? Do we need to change our policy? And I think they just, they kept just this whole kind of, you know, there was a certain arrogance to questioning to say, nope, this is what we're doing. We're going to keep doing this. And, we're, and actually we're still doing the funding for lending program. And there was no sense to what might happen. Now, in terms of the inflationary side, if you look at, say, the two-thirds of inflationary impacts in New Zealand, which are coming from overseas, primarily commodity prices, oil prices, oil is, I mean, if you remember in, in let's say, March, April 2020, we had that um, crazy situation where oil prices went negative. Yeah, which was that cool. well too. Oh, yeah. well, which was <laughs> incredible. It's yeah. like, please, can anyone sort of store this oil somewhere? And But essentially before that, oil had been trading, you know, kind of, let's say, 50 to $80 a barrel. And it was still it was still at fifty to eighty dollars a barrel through most of twenty twenty one. It was only in late twenty one when the Ukraine situation started to appear that it started to rise. Then it went up to just above one twenty. Now it's back below ninety, so it's off the highs. So that impulse may come out of the system, but we weren't hit by that second inflationary wave until probably late twenty twenty one. 
But if you look at the monetary aggregates in New Zealand, I mean, the credit growth was in essentially late 2020, early 2021. So if you were looking at that, you're thinking, crikey, there's a lot of money being borrowed here. That was one hot summer in the housing market. Oh, yeah, and it's um, and I know personally because I was looking to buy a a place to live in Wellington because I'd given up renting, you know, because the, the rental situation there is so appalling, and I w- it was just like a fast market. Everywhere you went, suddenly this thing was up another thirty, fifty. People were paying ridiculous prices. Now, obviously, interest rates were driving that, and the fact that banks would were very happy to lend out. But that has caused, you know, serious problems um, and has now left us in a sort of a boom-bust situation as prices sort of start to come off. And we don't know really the impacts of that. But also people were were raising money to, yes, splurge on stuff at home because they weren't going overseas. Now, obviously, that's only people who've got equity or got money to do that. But it created a huge capacity strain in the construction market, residential renovations. Prices start to go up. People then start buying cars and boats. And, you know, had these really sort of weird outcomes. In the general market, what I prefer to look at, which is like cost of living, what does it cost for people to buy their groceries? And the stuff that actually everybody has to buy, everyone doesn't need to buy a boat or a new car, and I mean, that was kind of reasonably steady. And then it started to go off. And I think what happened is we got you know, hit by the Ukraine wave at the same time. And now we're in the situation we're in now. And in terms of the way inflation is calculated, it's very difficult for the year on year numbers to start going down until at least the beginning of next year, because they're always being referred back to the previous year. So we're going to still get 6 7% prints probably um, towards the end of the year. I'd imagine the government will hope then that the the fact that prices have come off will be reflected in lower rates next year. So I think from the policy point of view, the the frustration for me was the misdiagnosis of the problem. And I think if that had been done differently, and to be honest, this is the sort of thing that you'd expect the board to be asking. These are the sort of questions that you'd expect the board to be saying to the Reserve Bank governor, hey, do you, have you got this right? And I don't think, I mean, we don't know because we don't have minutes. We don't have really any evidence of this. But I don't think there's any suggestion that those questions were being asked because any time, you know, Adrian was asked about, you know, well, do we need to change tack? Nope. Full steam ahead. Well, actually, what's going on in the housing market? Oh, well, that's just maybe an outcome of things. It was kind of unnecessary in a way. So the initial impulse was fine. The liquidity was taken care of. How that liquidity was provided, yes, is arguable, and people will have different views about that, but the initial impulse was right. But not diagnosing the problem and then constantly updating has kind of led us to this situation, and it's, it's pretty unfortunate because we're kind of in a position that probably could have been avoided to some extent. I mean, when, when I think back to, to March 2020, and, yeah, I mean, you, you're right, the, the bond market, I mean, the US Treasury market was it was just crazy times in that, so that, that's the liquidity issue you talk about. The big fear was um, a huge increase in unemployment in, in sort of March 2020, and obviously that actually happened in the US. I mean, there were crazy millions and millions of people losing their jobs in the US. It didn't happen in New Zealand, and obviously that is a success. That is a public policy success. The wage subsidy obviously had a huge role in that. But then, you know, as the year went on, um, as you say, it sort of became obvious that the world wasn't going to end and we weren't going to have mass unemployment. 
I wonder, I mean, we talk a lot about quantitative easing and we'll come back to that, but the official cash rate was cut to a record low of 0.25% in March 2020 and stayed there until October 2021 and then they've started to increase it slowly and more quickly subsequently. What's your take on on how they've used the OCR over this period? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, this is this whole thing about negative rates and the question around, let's say, liquidity I mean, liquidity, credit, solvency, all slightly different issues, but the price of money in a situation like this is more like, it's more of a confidence indicator than actually, oh great, interest rates are 75 basis points lower. And another point I raise is if you look at interest rates over the last five years, I mean, we've been at 2% and below. Rates had just been cut previously, so they didn't have a lot of room on the downside. I think at the time I was calling for 50 basis points. The wage subsidy, which had been used in the earthquakes, we had that all ready to go. So that was in a way good previous policy that could be wheeled out. So in a way that was what I would call, let's say personal liquidity. It was making sure that there was still purchasing power in the general economy for people to buy the basics. So that's absolutely critical. The the OCR, I mean, I think I had, when, when the government was trying to do some stuff for businesses, like there was that $10,000 was it a $10,000 interest-free loan? I had people I know who, you know, run small businesses and they go, oh, you know, do you, what do you think about this? And I go, well, what, what's your situation at the moment? And their situation was, well, we can't open. <laughs> it's not, the interest rate is irrelevant to us. It really doesn't matter. The people who are most affected or most sensitive to interest rates were people buying financial assets. And that's why, you know, at the time, I was saying, other people were saying, well, hold on a second, this is likely to spur a boom in financial asset prices because what are they priced off? The interest rate. When you're running a business, the, the interest rate is obviously relevant, but at the margin, it's not as important as can you hire people? What are your wage rates? Can you be open? And so for a lot of small businesses, particularly in, in retail hospitality, which were most impacted, they were saying to me, well, Raph, I don't know. Should I be hiring an extra person? That's more of an issue for me than the interest rate. The interest rate, actually, I haven't even really looked at it, you know? And that's where you get to liquidity. Will the bank continue to lend me money? And I think the the good thing the Reserve Bank did in terms of messaging, I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure, you know, Adrian was saying, look, hey, keep lending, keep lending. So I think that was a quite, that's an important thing, I think, in terms of liquidity control. So for yeah, for small biz, big businesses, slightly different. Um, they're probably running uh, bigger borrowing programs, and so treasury management is is more important to them. For the vast majority of small business owners, not a big deal. Now, if you're in a traditional business cycle recession, and it's kind of hard to sort of think because we've been so dominated by fi- financial markets for so long, it's hard to sort of go back and remember a traditional. Uh, recession, which was not caused by a collapse in asset prices or, or financial difficulties. But generally, yeah, you would reduce interest rates to essentially encourage businesses to scale up and invest. Now, that's a model that a lot of people still hold in their minds. And it just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it just does not exist. That's not how a financial system works. It's, it's really, it's about asset prices. It's about the ability to leverage. And the interest rate in terms of business investment is not quite as important as it used to be. Now, if we take leverage out of the system and we 
somehow get on top of, let's say, financial asset price speculation, we might return to a time where businesses are more tuned to variables in interest rates because that matters a lot more. But when people are buying stuff essentially for massive capital gain, they don't care. But if interest rates go down, great, they can leverage more. Get get more equity. I mean, I saw an advert in getting a taxi to the airport yesterday, um, the advert from this property company that I won't name, you know, use the equity in your current house to buy another house. And it's like, you know, I mean, we've been doing some market research around this stuff. And yeah, there's a lot of people who think that's how you're supposed to, to make money. We, we had a comment from someone, I want my money to make more, you know, more money than I do. And then everyone's going, oh, well, you can't have people sitting around doing nothing. You know, well, actually, that's what a lot of people are <laughs> making more money. So, so I think everything is a bit warped. And I think the old fashioned role of interest rates has changed a lot. And I just don't think we've admitted it. I don't think we've really understood that the concept of inflation has changed and the impact of supply side drivers. And we're still wedded to this kind of 90s model of monetarist uh, policymaking where reserve banks control inflation uh, by using interest rates. And there's no discussion about actually technology has driven most of the <laughs> the cost decrease is not your monetary policy. And actually, when we look at it, central banks have actually done quite poor jobs. They've stoked booms. Um, they've enc- encouraged poor credit allocation. We have the global financial crisis. We have a European monetary union, which is creaking at the seams that you cannot make up any more acronyms to describe very bizarre lending practices that go on. And if anyone can work that out, good luck to them. And so I, I kind of think, you know, we're, we almost need to just step back a, a second and go, well, hold on. There's a lot of um, very strongly held beliefs here. Maybe they're not quite as true as we think, you know, other than inflation is absolutely always the critical measure, but how we control it is perhaps not as straightforward as we think. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to inflation shortly. But first of all, I just wanted to um, talk about one of your policies as leader of the Opportunities mm. Party, of the, the top party, is what you call overt monetary financing. Now, back in 2020, you were suggesting that instead of this quantitative easing of buying bonds in the secondary market off banks, this is the Reserve Bank doing it, of course, that the Reserve Bank... Uh, could have bought government bonds directly from Treasury at 0% and then used this to fund the economic support packages. Is this the overt monetary financing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, essentially. Let, let's just yeah, yeah, no, talk absolutely. about this, what, what you mean by overt yeah. monetary financing. If they had done this in 2020, how do you think things would have panned out? Well, I think, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, it's not um, strictly top policy. It's certainly something that we're looking at. Um, I mean, I think our focus is probably more on public debt and actually not being too concerned about what the public debt level is uh, within the overall you know, debt balance of the country. And I know there's been some some articles out about that. Private debt is the problem, not public debt particularly. Not, not public debt that's um, essentially domestic. Foreign debt, foreign currency debt is a problem, which obviously countries like Sri Lanka are currently um, finding out. Yeah, for me, and I mean, this is something that came out of of the GFC. I remember Adair Turner talking a lot about it. Um, and I, even people like Mervyn King. I mean, a lot of people actually thinking, well, hold on a sec, did we get this right in the GFC? Was QE, quantitative easing, the right policy? We know a bit more about it. It's an asset swap. You know, it's not money printing specifically. 
it's uh, exchanging essentially central bank reserves um, for bonds. So yes, it certainly has has an impact, but the major major impact essentially is is a liquidity impact and lowering interest rates. So there is obviously some, you know, there is some debate about actually the impact of lowering interest rates. Um, but there are other things you can do like yield curve control where you actually say, right, the three-year rate is going to be X. And this is what they did in Australia. And obviously in, in Japan, the BOJ is basically saying, you know, um, zero interest rates forever kind of thing, which, you know, probably won't last forever. Yeah, but this is but this essential idea that um, if we think how money is created, essentially the commercial banking system creates money when it makes a loan. Um, it's you know, I think being a commonly held belief that banks lend out your deposits, well, they don't do that. And um, <laughs> it, it's taken central banks some time. I think the Bank of England was the first one to come out and publish uh, some clarity around this. The ECB um, did it. I think the Reserve Bank might have done it as well. Just actually explaining to people the mechanics of how money works. And we, we kind of don't know because essentially it's just the money supply and you kind of think, well, who cares how it gets there? Um, everything works, but obviously it has distributional impacts. And when we think obviously how much money the commercial banking system is making, <laughs> it's like every year, oh, record profits. It's like, oh, okay, that's very nice. So for me, it was, I mean, there was certainly some experimental um, sites, but essentially it's like, well, why are you buying, you know, why are you buying bonds um, out in the open market, the Reserve Bank. And in fact, the Bank of England did this, essentially had an overdraft account for the Treasury. And there were certainly people in the UK saying, we'll just keep that going. And then it's actually much easier to stop, you know, once you've had the desired impact. Um, so it's a lot cheaper for starters. You have the same impacts, but it's a lot cheaper. So why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Simply because we don't trust politicians, um, which I think is probably fair. Um but then again, we get ourselves into these mechanisms which often lack good accountability. Because if there was accountability, the Reserve Bank governor would be gone. But that's not the case um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But essentially, he's, he has a remit and he's failed, so he should be fired. But <laughs> that's not how. But on that basis, I mean, every Reserve Bank governor in the world would have been fired, right, at the moment? Yeah, totally. Much. Exactly. Yeah. So essentially, it's... What they should probably be saying is, oh, hold on a second, maybe we need to review. It's not reviewing the targets because we've always focused, should it be 0 to 2%, 1 to 3%, 0 to 3%, whatever. It's actually, let's review the mechanism. And I think that's the conversation I think we should be having because th there's never a, there's not a right or wrong way. It's actually, what are the outcomes of doing policy this way? And I've kind of been a bit involved in this for the last 20 years, trying to have this conversation about actually, well, how do we create money? How do we distribute money? We know that whoever has access to capital in a capital-dominated system has a huge advantage. And this is why we see inequality, you know, increasing or remaining the same and why we see people who have capital pouring it into financial assets because that's where you're incentivized to put your money. So I think we need to have a good uh, long talk about that. We need to almost review central banking over the last 30 years understanding the basically understanding supply side it's all been about demand can we manage the demand for money well actually the main thing and you, you speak to any bankers actually it's not the interest rate it's actually willingness to borrow and then can the borrower service the loan we, we know we've lived with interest rates 20 percent zero percent we know that's that's the real driver and a bank will not lend you money if they don't think you can service the loan the interest rate is just a number they punch in 
and compare it with your cash flow and can you, you know, it's just obviously for a purchase of financial assets, the interest rate is the biggest component of the price. So everything becomes a bond. So if you, if you cut interest rates, then the price of that bond or house, as houses have become, goes up. And obviously interest rates going up now, prices will come down because obviously people tap in how much they can afford and the price that spits out the other end is a lot lower. So if you think about it, there was a parliamentary inquiry into monetary policy in 2008. And I, I submitted to that. I reread my submission and it was, you know, it was mostly okay. There's some sort of slightly hairy bits in there. But also this is an evolving subject as well. I think there's the sense that the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, you know, it's the end of history, the Fukuyama um, thesis, that actually we had arrived at a point, not just politically, but also in terms of financial policy, where we'd solved everything. Oh, this is really easy. We just put interest rates up and down, in which case really don't, you can just have a simple algorithm which can make that decision for you. You don't need to employ millions of people. But actually the system is way more complicated than that. The global trading system, global credit system, the global derivative system, boy, you know, try to work your way out of that. Who knows? So I think it's something that we need to sit down and look at and look at actually how do we fund public services? What is the best way? We constantly start talking about, oh, public, private finance. It's the disciplines of private capital. Well, our experience would say actually private capital makes as many mistakes as public capital. Actually, the main issue is humans and the way we make decisions is not always very good. Um, so we have to kind of live with that. And we constantly try to design ways to get ourselves out of it. But actually, we're always in there somewhere because we're always setting terms of reference or frameworks. Um, so in terms of the, you know, the, the monetary financing, of course, people get excited. Oh, it's money printing, whatever. And it's like, well, what have we just done? But then, of course, because of the inflation that we're seeing, it's quite difficult to have that conversation. Yeah, in, in, inflation, that, yeah. That, that's something we do need to talk about, absolutely. I mean, we're 7.3% consumer price index inflation in New Zealand, highest in 32 years. Obviously, other parts of the world, it's even higher than that. Um, you've talked a bit about it, um, but what do you really attribute this inflation to? And um, I guess also interested in talking about the, the monetary financing thing, and you've said it's not actually top policy, but it's something you are thinking about. What would that do to inflation as well? Well, I think that um, and if I go back to, I think, one of those articles in 2020, what I was suggesting is that money needed to go into specific areas. The first one was income support. So that's your essentially your wage subsidy. And that's preserving basic purchasing power. But the rest of it was into infrastructure. Now, you can use that, that funding to develop infrastructure. Now, obviously, you can't build a lot when people can't go out and do things. But that's where, the, if you like, the fiscal impulse, that's where it should have gone. But the fiscal impulse went into the housing market. So that, that's our inflationary problem. Now, if we'd actually said, OK, now we're going to start funding, let's say, the three waters upgrade. Forget the, um, the governance and the new entities, which is essentially completely unnecessary. But if you just look at it from a financial, you've got a bunch of projects over 30 years, 120, 180 billion, whatever, four, four to six billion a year. That's peanuts, you know, one to two percent of GDP a year. You say, right, we're going to start funding some of these projects. And... In some ways, the shovel-ready program and the provincial growth fund, I mean, yes, they were kind of lollies being thrown around the place, but you could have funded that off the government balance sheet. 
And then essentially you've got people working, people know there's a work program there, you've got some foundational stuff to the economy. That's where the funding should have gone. Now, that wouldn't have been inflationary in the way that the house price increase has, has been inflationary because you're always essentially um, on the other side, uh, restricted by capacity. And one of the things we learn in, in the Christchurch earthquakes and the infrastructure rebuild after that is actually we don't have as much capacity as we think. So the capital program um, and repair program in, in Christchurch each year, we would only deliver about 60 or 70%. And essentially this is because, yeah, people's eyes were bigger than their belly. They'd say, oh, we're going to do all these projects. And then actually, well, we don't have the people to do the projects. So actually we're not going to deliver that. So how do we actually bring down our expectations? Now, inflation essentially is, a, is an indicator to say that you have capacity pressures in the economy. Now, again, in the traditional economy that we think we're operating in, that should work fine. In an economy where financial assets are such a big part of it, it's a different story. And it's like, can we try and get away from essentially, you know, capital gain, highly leveraged, credit-fueled <laughs> investment and back to a what we call a productive economy where we deliver good public services, we have innovation, we create and make things, we innovate, um, we do science and research, and we provide you know, basic goods and services. And I think that's the problem we've got. I mean, as Bernard is often fond of saying, you know, we're kind of a housing market with an economy. A few bits on. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's it. cows and tourists tacked on. And we have to change that. So I think from an inflationary perspective, if you're investing and funding the real economy, then first of all, inflation is a lot easier to see because it's the capacity, oh, we don't, we can't deliver that work. Now, putting up prices is not going to help deliver that work either. But often, you know, businesses will jack up a price because they don't actually want to win that particular work. So people are generally not going to pay that because they can't actually deliver it because they'll have to stop doing another project. So, but those, those capacity constraints are much easier to see in the real economy. In the financial economy, it's different because people then start to go into buying consumer goods like cars, boats, whatever. Um, international travel now, you know, prices are through the roof. But do we really care from a, a domestic economy perspective? I think people who are trying to put food on the table don't care about the price of international travel. So why should we have that in the CPI? But stuff like that is in there. It's like, what's the cost of living, which is essentially food, groceries, energy, a whole, you know, that more basic stuff. So I think, you know, to go back to your question, it's like, how can you generate uh, non-inflationary production. Um, and essentially, it's investing in the real economy, understanding what the capacity constraints are. And those are your signals. So again, I mean, the, out, you know, the, the famous output gap um, in the construction market, uh, in the infrastructure market, you see it really well. And when you talk to firms in those markets, they go, look, if you give us a long work program, like three years outwards, we can plan it. And then we can do the pricing at a more consistent level, and we know what our capacity is, and we can hire, we can train, uh, you know, like the water care deal with Fletcher's, um, and I can't remember the other, the other party, but you know, it's a 10 year, you know, two, $3 billion plan, and then they can actually plan that out. So that's the real economy. That's what we should be funding. And long-term planning. Long-term yeah. planning, because then you can get the workforce right as well and do the training. And then if, you know, prices start to rise, they're generally for raw materials harder to manage, particularly if you're importing stuff. But 
we have just got so obsessed with the financial asset economy, which is housing and stocks. Um, and that's, and you know, and essentially this, we've been talking about this for a long time. We have. And we still have not got to grips with it. And we have a government that has refused to tax housing properly. Uh, we're talking about, you know, land value tax as a simple tax to bring in. Um, they've started to look at that. Well, they're bringing that in in Australia, where it has tended to be around a lot more. And yeah, we have to do something about it. So the inflationary output from financial asset speculation is much harder to manage, definitely. And then when you add that with external, you know, overseas inflation, we've got a big problem. Okay. A couple more issues yeah. I, I want to touch on before. I mean, we could go on all day, but we, we probably shouldn't. Um, your government debt you mentioned, and you're comfortable with that running higher, it would seem, than uh, probably most, if not all, the parties that are in mm. Parliament, certainly, I mean, ACT and National and, and, and Labor, they want to reduce debt as a percentage of GDP. Why are you less concerned than them? Because I, I don't think they understand how it works. It's actually the the public debt component is almost what is left over after everything else has happened in the economy. So it's it's a question of how you want to fund things, what you want to fund. But essentially, the, the most important indicator, again, is inflation. And inflation used to tell us that the economy is running too hot for whatever reason. And alongside that are basic capacity constraints, so output gaps and so on. Th those are the indicators that are more important than actually what is actually the public debt. Now, private debt is a much bigger problem. And the question is, well, it's obviously a problem for the people who have lent it, so the banks. Uh, so <laughs> from a government perspective, maybe you don't worry about it. But I worry more about private debt than public debt. We see high public debt in, in Japan. We see high public debt all over the place. So it's really the construction of that debt. But essentially, if it's domestically denominated, it's not a huge problem. So when you say domestically denominated, you mean like New Zealand government yeah, New Zealand. in the New Zealand yeah. dollar? So yeah. which primarily that's bonds the New Zealand government yeah. issues de denominated in the New Zealand yeah. dollar. So yes. that, that doesn't worry you. But if you're Sri Lanka and you've loaned all sorts of from, from China and other and other countries, other, yeah. other lenders in the US dollar or the yuan or whatever, that would worry you? Yeah, of course, because you then have to provide foreign currency. So essentially you have to be exporting stuff. When your export market breaks down, you can't repay the debt, your currency collapses. And that is a big problem. So, but at the same time, you know, if, if we look at where public debt has been and, you know, we're not talking about public debt going to astronomical levels because actually it can't because their economy is constrained. I think the point I'm making is they have spent so much time adhering to this number, essentially to send a signal. So government's all about sending signals to the public that we know, know what we're doing. And of course, look, if we look at the financial history of the last 30 years, governments generally don't know what they're doing. And it's kind of just by often good fortune and luck <laughs> that they get to where they are. But so essentially, like, you know, after the earthquakes, we must return to surplus. Christchurch got squeezed in terms of the investment that it needed. It was totally unnecessary, but it was a, a, it was a signal to the public that we're good managers of the economy. Well, it's complete nonsense, really. Um, it wouldn't have made any difference at all. And, and also now, I mean, I, I saw, you know, for example, the government, let's say in the last quarter was putting out all these ads, oh, GDP at 5.6%, haven't we done a good job? It's totally irrelevant. We're kind of two years into a massive global, you know, economic <laughs> cataclysm, and GDP is going to be all over the place. 
And you shouldn't be worried too much about that. It's actually what are the outcomes in the economy? And, you know, employment is much more of an important figure. So that's low, which is great. Um, and, you know, then you get people going, oh, well, we need employment higher to get inflation down. Well, that's also another ridiculous nonsense. So, I mean, I think that we need to talk about prices and inflation. There's some really good literature out there now about prices. And hey, let's look at our domestic energy market. Why is that a profit-making business? Everyone needs energy. Everyone needs to keep the lights on. When governments can't keep the lights on, they tend to be um, not around for a long time. So why don't we look at that market? How do, how do we produce energy at least cost? And should it be a profit-maximizing thing? So I think, uh, you know, this is, for some people, this is a struggle because they're still so wedded to you know the last 30 years orthodoxy. But if you actually sit down and think about this stuff it, and ask the question, it's like, oh, really? Is that how that works? So actually, it's not setting a public debt number. You can look at, say, I mean, I've talked a bit in the past about a nominal GDP number. Now there's kind of debate over that, but essentially as an indicator for, is the economy running at the right level? I As close to maximum employment, um, but not inflationary. So that get, that give, that can give you a signal. Unemployment is a signal. Obviously, inflation is a signal. So the public debt bit actually is, is going to be constrained by all those other things. So it really can't go that high anyway. Uh, but the, the worry about leveraged private debt, because that's much more destabilizing, that can have a huge impact on an economy. Public debt generally is not you know, that big a problem. Um, yeah, as long as it's domestically denominated. Okay. And we'll, we'll come back to wrap up, come back to the sort of starting point. So if we have a review or an inquiry into the Reserve Bank's response to um, the COVID-19 pandemic, and, and even if we incorporate the government's yep. fiscal response, what do we want to achieve from that? I think we want a blueprint for how we would respond to crises in the future. And they are going to come. They're likely to be, obviously, climate issues are not going to go away, so flooding. So essentially, you'll have a, a climate, um, so we've got a pandemic economy, war economy, let's say a climate economy or climate-impacted economy where towns get flooded. So essentially, it's a natural disaster aspect. We went through that in Christchurch. Some of the, the government's response there, particularly the wage subsidy, which they you know literally made up on the spot um, down there. That was really good policy because, again, it's – but I don't like to think of it as a wage subsidy. For me, it's about keeping the purchasing power going in the economy. Um, and it, if, if, if private firms can't um, supply that, then the government should step in. It doesn't really matter too much. You just have to know when to sort of take your foot off the accelerator. So we need a blueprint for managing the challenges that are going to come in the future. So I think, you know, let's be clear eyed about this. It's, it's, we have to get away from the politics of it. We want to know. And there are plenty of people out there who talk about this all the time. And I've never seen such a robust discussion and debate in global macro. And that's because of, yeah, the internet and Twitter. People can talk to each other who never would have talked to each other before. So you, you get to see some incredible thinking, incredible data, papers, literature, reviews. And there are people in New Zealand here who can take part in an inquiry like this who might have different views but can also consider evidence. And, yeah, I think it's it's really important that we do this. And governments tend to shy away from criticism. But if we don't learn from how we do things so that we can do them better the next time, then that is a bit of a worry. 
And obviously we could go on there into quantitative easing and how it was used in the global financial crisis and again in this one, but we'll, we'll leave it there for today. Well, can I just say, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's my sense, and I was certainly quite keen to see the mechanics of it. My sense is they had this toy in the cupboard and by golly, they were going to use it and they weren't going to consider everything, anything else. So, I mean, Paul Keating was talking about um, the Reserve Bank buying bonds directly from the Treasury. Well, he's a pretty experienced guy in this field, you know, so there was no consider consideration given to that. And I think the problem is once they'd had the toy out of the garage, they wanted to keep driving it around. And it was almost like, haven't we done well? Well, unfortunately, financial markets and the world and life doesn't work like that. You know, you've got to be on your toes. And I think there wasn't enough analysis done. And, you know, to me, that is actually, well, it's a failure of the board but also the Minister of Finance is the person sitting over that. this. He should have been on the phone all the time. What's going on? Are we doing the right thing? Does this make sense? Do we need to change um, direction? And yeah, we don't know whether that happened. Um, maybe one day we will find out. But uh, I think a, an inquiry that's, you know, as apolitical as possible, which is actually, let's look at what we did. Could we have done things differently? What were the impacts of what we did? And could we have, you know, changed that response at an earlier stage? And I think clearly the answer to that is yes. But actually, let's just get it out. There's, there's a ton of information. There's plenty of hindsight. There's plenty of comments people made along the way. And uh, I think it's quite important for us to do that. Well, look, thanks a lot, Raf. That's uh, a very interesting discussion. That's Raf Manji, who is the leader of the Opportunities Party or Top Party. And I'm Gareth Vaughan at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.